The Table Sessions is a podcast, workshop, and digital publication hosted by architectural designers Austin Raymond and Ken Filler. Our conversations, while informal by nature, speculate on the formal patterns found within the fields of design and popular culture. Hey everyone, Austin here. This is an exciting episode as it marks the beginning of our second official season of the Table Sessions podcast. Last year, Ken and I co-developed a whole suite of episodes exploring design through some very exciting perspectives. Episodes ranged from large-scale commentaries on equality to some more introspective explorations within architectural design, film, and media. This season, we're going to start off by jumping right into a several-episode arc devoted to our reoccurring interest in dwelling and urban identity. To kick this mini-series off, on today's episode, Ken and I are joined by friend of the podcast, Brian Samuel. Brian is an architectural designer who has been living and working in Washington, D.C. for the past several years, and who specializes in multifamily housing. Brian brings to us today his team's exploration into 4D housing, a time-based concept similar to Airbnb, rethinking the use of individual rooms as a monetizable space. After exploring the benefits and limitations of his team's proposed model, we also collectively questioned several ethical concerns regarding the transient influences such spaces might bring to our communities. Quick note, this episode, like many, starts off with some casual conversation. If you'd like to jump right into the main conversation, skip the minute 10 of the episode. All right, that's all I've got. Enjoy. Wait, so did you watch all of um, Love? No. What was no. it? Love, Sex, Robots? Love, Death, and Robots. Ro- no, love. I've watched like three, four episodes. But yeah, some of them are hit or miss, but they're 15 minutes. So I like the, I like the variety. You know? 15? Yeah. Yeah. I, I almost wish that they didn't start off with the very first one because the first one made it seem like the entire series was going to be about that robot um, avatar battle world. And then it clips to the second one. It's a cute cartoon. Wait, what is the first one? I can't remember. The, I don't the, know if I started with the first one either. The the very first one was about the. Um, it, it's essentially remember BattleBots from the nineties. Sure. And people built kind the little robots, and then there was the arena in the center. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so originally the BattleBots and Robot Wars, like you would control them by a remote control. But the theme of this first episode was that they've created some kind of neural link between. Yeah these um hyper violent creatures and the person controlling it and you share a neural link and after the battle um well it's one of those kind of things where this rich person asks the champion to throw the match and they don't and so they come to kill him which or kill her the main character and when they end up killing the main character you realize that she was a triple neural net and that she was remoting in from a different location and she ends up like reanimating her robot from a third location and killing the assassins. <laughs> this all happens in 15 minutes? Yeah, it's pretty uh, yeah. it's pretty nuts. It's kind of like I don't you, think I, I never watched it. Yeah, I didn't watch it. It's kind of like if you only watched the first episode of Black Mirror, you'd be like, "Wow, I've never watched this show again." <laughs> <laughs> it's literally terrible. Well, it's, so that's exactly what I thought was I watched yeah. the first episode and I was like, "Wow, this is dark." And then I <laughs> waited 3 days to watch the next one and the next one is literally like two cute cartoons like walking through this digital world and i'm like what yeah yeah 
Yeah, I like how unconnected they are. Like, you don't know what you're going to get, you know? Yeah. yeah. My favorite one is there's an episode just called Yogurt. Yeah, so mm. <laughs> The whole world is now <laughs> under the, like, the um, supervision of yogurt, the literal, like, yo play yogurt kind of, well, like, bacteria. I, I got so many things to add to my. Yeah. I got that. I have samurai shampoo mm-hmm. and shampoo. Castlevania. Have you ever heard this? Samurai shampoo? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's samurai. I can't remember if it's shampoo or champoo. I think it's champoo, but it it translates to samurai samurai remix. And the whole thing is that they mix an anime about traditional and funky style samurai fighting with contemporary um, like themes, like blending contemporary and traditional themes as these two characters um, like traverse feudal Japan with this girl who's trying to find like her father. It is. It's awesome. I love it. All right. Yeah, I'm, I'm, the rest of the week, it's what I'm going to do. I'm supposed to be studying, but no, I'm just going to watch this Samurai. And you're going to watch anime. Into the Spider-Verse? That, well, I literally have it on my Netflix still like up paused right now. So <laughs> as soon as we finish this shit, I can go home and watch that. <laughs> <laughs> we saw uh, Midsummer last night. Have you seen the preview for that? Never heard of it. It's like a Swedish... Well, it's, a, it's like a... A24, the film institute made it, or the film studio made it. They're like, they've done a lot of stuff recently, but... It's basically like a horror movie during the day at like a ritualistic summer like pagan festival in Sweden. And like these friends, like these four friends go and like one friend brings them back. And it's just like, I don't, I don't want to tell you much about it in case you want to see it, but it's like a really well done movie if you like scary kind of horror style. Yeah. I thought objectively it was a really good movie. It, it left me with a ton of questions, but I, I liked it a lot. So you know, you know how like most horror films like, uh, like um, Us just came out? Was it Us or They? It was us, right? Is yeah, that the us. Get Out sequel? That's yeah. the Get Out sequel. Have you sequel. seen Get Out? I saw Get Out. Yeah. So do you like Get Out? I thought it was good. So some of like some of like the way like that like mindset of how it's structured is very it's kinda like similar in that it in that it's not like a gory horror film. Okay. You know? yeah. yeah. I was wondering it's not if it was like, like a hard slasher to watch film. Or something. Yeah. No, no, no. It's like it's like mostly thriller based kind of that kind of thing. Yeah. Gotcha. So like one of the most well known horror movies of all time is Night of the Living Dead. So the whole movie takes place over nighttime and it's horror infused with the horror of the night. Mm-hmm. Well, then with Get Out, you have um, the main character visiting this family's home, and the niceness of the family and the picnic is all during the day. And when the lights go out and nighttime comes, then the kind of the horror of the family and the um, the act sure. of trying to like um, yeah. capture the main character's like soul through the hypnosis comes out at the nighttime. Well, Midsummer subverts that even further because when you're in northern Scandinavia, like four hours north of Helsinki, the sun only goes down for like an hour and a half, like two hours. And so all the horror is happening during the day. Yeah, but so you don't like expect it? Like like one of the, um, this is the, it's a good way to describe like the suit, like the uh, 72 year old, like cliff scene. Oh, Like one of the first scenes is like, to just like give you a good picture of like the culture. The people live in the, in this culture. They go from zero to eighteen, eighteen to thirty six, thirty six to fifty four, and and fifty four to seventy two are like the four stages of life. Sure. And then when they're seventy two, like they basically like voluntarily commit suicide. But like the people that get there, they're all like, um. So this one friend brings his three or four friends. He brings his four friends back, and he's like, they're all like anthropology graduate students. They're like doing their thesis, and they're trying to figure out like they're studying like cultures. He's like, you should come. Like, but really, he's just like kind of. Well, I don't want to tell you, but he, he might or may or may not know like <laughs> about about the culture and what is actually happening kind of thing. Okay. Yeah. But when you're like um, 
when you're 72 though in this culture you like have this big ritual like a dinner and you like you basically jump off a cliff and like kill yourself cool <laughs> and like am i giving too much away no i mean like i would like, describe it as like in our culture at like in our 70s we put our like grandfather and grandmother like in an old folks home so they transition into another state of life right in this culture they rationalize it as in the fourth stage of life the winter of your life when you reach 76 or 78 you 72 72 Eight you months. choose to end your life yeah. because you it is a big difference you you've now lived to the point where you're done with life yeah there's yeah. no there's no future so like and like his friend like didn't prepare them for this so they like yeah but they were like kind of be open like Okay, if this is as far as things go, like we can deal, like we yeah, understand yeah. culturally. Yeah, sure. And it's like, then it just like keeps going you. down that that like road of like and craziness. It, of and it and it just stuff. gets worse. I mean, that's kind of funny because it's like it's like real life too. It's like how much is like is it just a culture you don't understand? And how much yeah. is like oh, this is kind of like general mutilation? Like you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. Like that's right on that line of like okay, we can we yeah. could see how that <laughs> yeah, would be yeah. a thing, <laughs> but in reality, like. No, something's just hard. Something's but then, hard. yeah, and then it kind of moves on from there. But it's like, if you're into, like, what's interesting is it's not the kind of movie where, like, you know, it's it's not the kind of movie that's going to be, like, any of the classic, like, there's like the chase scenes. It's, it's like, very, like, unique in the way yeah. it does, like, horror, which is cool, if you're into that kind of stuff. So, <laughs> in, in a weird way, I almost feel like this is kind of a, good setup for no way <laughs> no, no 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 hear, hear me out hear me out so so you know okay, in, okay. in a weird way midsummer deals with aspects of time and the way that you live culturally throughout like the course of a day or throughout the course of your life okay. like, I, follow. Sub- I follow your segue something. i follow your segue yeah. okay what we're here to talk about today is a competition project that you had done and reading through it i was really excited because it what it looks like you're doing is taking the traditional housing model and you're reimagining it as if there was some type of timeshare of space and identity through how housings are used over the course of the day yeah i mean it basically it looks as housing to some degree is a service based or time-based quantity or mm-hmm. not just housing just the functions of daily lives that can be that can be kind of segregated which I mean, the current state, we, everyone gets 100% ownership of everything. Everyone has a kitchen, everyone's mm-hmm. got a living room, everyone's got a bedroom. And there are a lot of functions that we hoard to ourselves, even though right now, you know, some people even take it further. Some people will have like a gym in their own home or a recording studio or something like that. Mm-hmm. And they'll own that thing 100% of the time, even if they only use it, you know, a handful of times a year or a handful of times a day. Um, so this kind of just looks at maximizing efficiency instead of looking at space in terms of square footage you're looking at efficiency that you can gain when you look at space in terms of square footage based by uh per hour it wasn't just yourself it was with some yeah so i worked with some people from the the architecture firm that i work at square 134 um there are two people who or three people who worked uh, very closely with so drew kesmeric sabrina nagel and uh, samson chang and we all worked together on this um with different parts, you know, that we focused on, but it was a group effort to make this uh, project together. So mm-hmm. this, I mean, this is sort of just the next level of an evolution of housing that's already starting to take place. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, the first shift that we've been seeing is sort of people moving into cities in, to begin with. You know, there are a lot of people coming to denser populations, and cities are becoming host to more and more people and they're starting to provide more and more amenities to people and more people want to move and work in cities 
And the obvious result is supply and demand dictates is that the more people want to move in and live, the more expensive things get. And as the price per square footage goes up, people start to look at, you know, what's the most obvious solution? You reduce the amount of square footage, the lower, the less space that you have to pay for, you know, the cheaper it is for you to live in. So that works to a point, you know, like you can easily, you can imagine, you know, a 500 square foot home or, or, you know, a one bedroom, you know, something like that would not have been on the market for anybody, you know, let's say two decades ago, no Mm -hmm. one would ever think about living in such a small space. But, you know, as demands have changed, it's, it's also kind of, it's come hand in hand with sort of a lifestyle change that we've seen over the last few years where people are more accustomed to the ideas of having less physical things. I mean, even think of paper, for example. Mm-hmm. I mean, digital technologies make it so that, you know, some people don't want to print things anymore. That's just the smallest example I can think of. But minimalism as a lifestyle and the sort of uh, flexibility that it offers and general mobility means that people are less less entrenched to the idea of staying in one place and more excited by the the opportunity to be able to be free and untethered to a place yeah and that happens on like a micro and a macro level right like on the city level and on like the house level i think when i was reading your um abstract the one thing i what you just said as well it found so compelling is like the approach thus far is to make square footage less and less you have to pay less and less but you're basically putting the the equation or the factor of time into that equation that says okay hey we're in a 750 square foot room right now it's being used 0% of the time from the hours of 9 to 5 because no one's here. Sometimes right. sometimes from 8 to 8 when like people like Austin, David, and Natalie like are working late or something like that. Like if if they had ownership of this space or if zoning laws allowed or whatever, there could actually be like a small startup uh, firm of like five people working in here all day during the day, say they were friends with or like or like a recording studio or something that like Someone used this space from eight to eight. Exactly. And like, it's, it's, it's like giving up some of your own convenience, you know, at the transition times, it's awkward. It's weird, especially for families and all that stuff. But like, if you're a person, like, especially a single young person in the city and you're comfortable living in a model where you can potentially, if you have ownership of that space too, like actually get back equity on the time that you're physically not there that's basically the the baseline premise of this whole study is that kind of correct yeah that's fair i mean like, you can kind of look at cities like it doesn't seem to make sense that we have to you know find density out of nowhere like we have to like people are considering there's a housing crisis like we aren't building enough we aren't building enough homes or residences to support the influx of people who want to come into cities but if you look at cities there's more than enough built space to support mm-hmm. the amount of people you know if you divide it on a per person basis um, the problem is it's just not being used throughout the day or efficiently. Yeah. I mean, look at downtown. Look at all of downtown. Yeah. I mean, like, but when you get past Rhode Island Ave, like, towards, like, Thomas Circle and down, really Thomas Circle is kind of the last bit of this part of, like, of of neighborhood. Then after that, it's, it's basically all commercial office space. Mm-hmm. And there's eight stories of after 5, 6 p.m., 7 p.m., there's literally completely vacant the and, entire and of, neighborhood. And um, the downtown is pretty vacant over on the weekends as well especially mid-morning and hotels and like yeah. families of four from wisconsin walking around we, going we, where the heck are all the people yeah the the day that we walked to the the renwick and recorded um we started up in meridian hill park and yeah. on the weekend meridian hill park is full of people there's like the drum circle it's very activated then you walk through the kind of the residential neighborhoods that kind of surround downtown and there are people sitting out on all of the um the porch restaurants and and eating lunch and like walking around but as soon as we hit downtown there was almost like a feeling of deadness in the yeah. air 
because like the buildings themselves weren't activated with the working environment. Um, yeah, everyone's either like at brunch or a tourist. Like <laughs> you come up here, people are like sitting on their porch or like reading a book or like mowing their lawn. Like it's like diff- there's like actual normal people living their lives up here. Yeah, I mean, it kind of looks the same model as like there are cycles to cities. There's times that people use and the same reason why Metro charges more at peak periods than, than not. It seems like you have to incentivize people to use spaces that aren't being used efficiently as is. So, so th- can you talk about how that project like addresses those cycles in some ways? I, I think it's like, that's like a, that you're like basically inserting that cycle based living into this project, right? Yeah, exactly. So the project that we're doing, we're calling it four dimensional housing because it adds, instead of just looking at space in three dimensions, X, Y, Z, um, we're looking at adding the layer of time. Um, and we're basically saying that in a radical move, it sort of makes sense to give up the idea of 100% ownership of space and that you design for the idea of places being used by multiple people at different times of the day. Because, you know, the majority of people, let's say if they work a nine to five sort of job, they'll sleep overnight in their home on a weekday they go to work and their home is entirely vacant until they come back. And that just seems to be a strange, like people, you pay for a house up front. Let's say if you're, you're buying it, you're paying for it and you get no return on it other than your own personal happiness or personal comfort and land value increasing over time. Yes, exactly. So it's a saleable asset, but it doesn't pay you anything or doesn't, it doesn't do anything. And that is on a financial sense, you're sitting on something that people always want. You know, people need shelter, mm-hmm. people need it. And it's something that's there and it's something that could be offered. And I think that's where this most powerful, it's a powerful avenue of to, to um, commodify your own home. How did you and your team like come across this competition? And when you read the original brief, like what led you to actually approaching the project in this way? Yeah. Um, so the brief itself asked us to reimagine the co-housing system in the context of Rome. So it wasn't site-specific. They didn't ask us to design a building. They asked us to design a co-housing system that would be catered towards Rome. Um, So for me, I had never been to Rome. I still have never been to Rome. And that part of it was very difficult for me to put my head into, but I can unwrap my head around co-housing because it's something I've worked on for a long time. And um, so I worked on those sort of systems, um, ideas. And in the first meeting, we start off with a group of five people, um, and we all sort of came at it in different uh, different ways. So um, my coworker, Sabrina, tried to understand the typologies of Roman urban planning, and she started to like, put together diagrams just to help us understand, just on the basis of the idea if we're going to design in Rome or design something uh, in this context, that we should understand it and that we should start to reflect it in some degree. Drew was very interested in the idea of developing over industrial sites or using these underutilized places and giving life to them. And that was sort of born out of the additional um, constraint that Rome has in that new construction starts to become very difficult in Rome due to its relative, its, its archaeological significance. And that can, when you start digging into the foundations, a lot of times construction can get delayed because you find things that, you know, you won't under, you know, you can't, that postponed development you might find like an urn from a thousand years ago or something like that. So building upon what um, th- uh, industrial sites was a, a, a jumping off point. And for me, I came into it, again, without that perspective of Rome, looking at a more broad system-based idea, which is this time-based interface. And um, 
you know, my intention was looking at it on, you know, in an individual level. Like you own a home, you can rent parts of it out. You know, where does that go from there? That gives you power and gives you a monetary incentive to something that you already already own. Um, and the next step was somehow it naturally combined all those ideas. Um, you know, the overall idea of the time-based rental system translates very well to existing homes but of course you would have to think about it in a larger scale and what happens when you have these ideas in place already you can't just ignore them when you build something new you would build them to those uh, those specifications and drew started to look at it on a larger scale development where he looked at the termini st- um, station as a as a site and a case study for this typology and the principles that sabrina had had looked at started to develop the organization of that new development so what were some of the the findings like maybe we can go through a couple of these sheets like what were actually some of like the ba- okay yeah that's the baseline that's what you went into the project saying okay these spaces are being underutilized and then like a how does design kind of how do designers in- yeah. insert themselves into that av- in that world to make it um palatable for everybody and b like did you find anything that you weren't expecting to find kind of while while doing this like like this whole kind of concept it asks people to like make some sort of sacrifice, right? And do you think people are like willing to to so, do that? Um, it was like three yeah. questions at once. Yeah. Okay. Let me let me try uh, set it up a little bit. So in terms of our project, we um, this was we looked at it in two different ways. So you can't. We looked at what this idea, you know, the. Uh, the sharing of time, which Airbnb has to some degree already done, mm-hmm. um, except they work on the basis of entire homes for entire days, where you know you can find more efficiencies in renting rooms for hours, for example. Just yeah, so. like I just went on vacation mm-hmm. with Megan rooms to hours, Seattle, yeah. and we rented um, like an apartment room, um, but because it was vacation travel, we had we were renting the room per day but we were only ever in the Airbnb maybe um, for one hour awake yep. um, eating dinner, and then we went to mm-hmm. sleep. So we were actually only utilizing a place that we rented for 24 hours for about nine or 10 hours a day. Exactly. That's such a compelling notion. Apartments per day to rooms per hour. Yep. Just that simple switch in way of thinking about things is like is, is radical, but it, it, like, it feels like it could be profitable and yep. it could be equitable across the board. So there are, there, are, there are two ways that we would look at it. And the first way is obviously how do you use this, this concept in general? How does that apply to the existing housing or built stock? Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's no point in proposing this idea if, you know, if you look at this home, for example, like it isn't – we talked about that awkwardness about transitioning or mm-hmm. having letting other people into your home, which, you know, Airbnb has started, but like what would you do in terms of splitting up parts of your home and how do you make it useful for other people to come in? Mm-hmm. So – we have to sort of uh, look at, you know, how can we use the existing housing model and how can we sort of subvert it or how, do, how can we um, transform it to be compatible with this model. So we looked at that and then we also looked at what if we use this model as a starting point and we designed a new construction based on this, this concept. Mm-hmm. So there are a couple, of, so I'll talk uh, briefly about some of the stuff that we did. Um, so we looked at a few sort of space dividing techniques for existing homes, something that could sort of be inserted or replaced um, within your own home to make it partially usable um, for the purposes of renting. So let's say you own a home. Um, it becomes, it's hard for you to imagine maybe uh, 
renting a living room, for example, to someone while you're in your own bedroom and sleeping or something like that. Brian, Brian, can we just clarify when we say home, are we thinking of a single family home or are we thinking about like a condo in an apartment or are we thinking about like a rental apartment? So that's a, that's a good, that's a good question. So this is more looking at a direct alternative to the idea of downsizing homes. So we're looking at this was a the prompt came in response to the fact that there are smaller and smaller almost inhumane sized um residences being provided i mean in rome i think there's a basically a room that's just a bed 50 square feet and there's Mm -hmm. nothing else and the idea is that you know the amenities of the city should be able to provide all you know the rest of your your home needs um and we kind of saying like it doesn't make sense you know this race to the bottom just doesn't end up well for human habitation. It doesn't seem to be a permanent solution for housing. Race to the bottom. That's such a good, yeah. Cause right now, I mean, we're looking at micro units right now and 300 even it's like, what, what's next? 200, it's, like it's Tokyo. Like right. it's, it's, what is it? What's next? Right. We, we just designed for a client that wanted sub um, 400 square foot. Yeah. Like uh, apartments. Right. Yeah. Exactly. So, I mean, it's, it's the question that doesn't, it stops being like, you know, what, like, how do you want to live? Like, you don't need this much space. Like, what do you, what's the best for you? You know, it's easier to clean, it's easier to manage. Mm-hmm. And now it's starting to be like, how much are you willing to give up to, to live in the city? You know, like what, yeah. what, what can you get rid of in your life? It's like all a human really needs is a prison cell. Right. <laughs> like Just really, right. Like really it's what you, what you really need is a bed and a toilet. <laughs> like, yeah. But you were saying that the project brief, which took place in Rome, you were looking at a new model of housing yeah. that would quantify the usable time that you wouldn't, necessarily use while you're away without shrinking the model or yeah there are there are a lot of different ways that the broad concept of applying so that's why i think there's a lot of different avenues this this can go so the main concept is essentially looking at housing as something that can be divided as on the basis of square footage per time okay function room room function per time and it sort of came as a a uh, rejection of the notion that we can just give up space for the basis of uh, cost of cost savings mm-hmm. and that it start, we we don't see that as a a sustainable model for human habitation so this model um, in many ways makes it feasible to live in comfortable square footage as a comf- reasonable spatial arrangements without sacrificing um, financial well-being um, and it does so by one either you look at in the let's say you're the owner it makes it reduces barriers to entry to the housing market because not only are, um, you're not just purchasing a house that you know hopefully one day you can sell for more it actually you're purchasing something that day to day or on a weekly basis can provide you another stream of income as is so you can sort of factor in the the earning potential of buying a home in the sense that you can purchase a home it can pay itself back before you even sell it mm-hmm. so in that sense um mm-hmm. there's actually this is kind of a it's not I mean, none of this is a brand new sort of building on existing ideas, but Airbnb has already come out with a model very similar to this. So they, mm-hmm. it's sort of a prototype housing. I think they have one in Nashville and another location. And the branding it is it's called Nido, N-I-I-D-O. Mm. Um, and um, the principle is that these are apartments that you buy that are set up for the purpose of renting through Airbnb. That's yeah. Why I should have seen that coming a mile away. Yeah, that's, that's such a good that's such a good idea for them. Yeah, <laughs> I've never heard that before. So I, what I've heard is that cities, in response to this, are actually levying huge taxes yeah, for sure. for um, purchasing homes if you haven't lived in the city um, for longer than X amount of time, mm. or if you're doing um, Airbnb. Some cities like Seattle have up 
um, require a minimum um, housing service fee. So for example, the house that we rented through Airbnb in Seattle, the cost per night was, I want to say like $80, but then the um, housing service fee was $125. So the housing service fee that was um, established by the city was actually more than what the renter was charging. Mm -hmm. And it even looked like they had lowered their rent to compensate for the fact that the housing charging fee was now making their Airbnb almost out of the range of affordability compared to say local hotels. Mm. So I'm actually seeing like cities um, fighting back against the act of going into a city, purchasing a home for the act of Airbnb renting it out. I mean, on a, I mean, as a different tangent, this, these sort of models are very dangerous to establish governments because they yeah, establish 100%. avenues outside of centralized control. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and that I think is one of the most powerful part about these sort of projects is that it kind of puts earning potential and the ownership of space in the hands of uh, consumers more so than it does um, regulatory bodies, which is also part of the danger of it to some degree. And, and on that note, um, part of this uh, project is, so, you know, if we go on the basic, you can, let's say you can rent part of your home. The principle is you can rent a room or a function for a certain period of time. You know, you can rent your living room to someone when you're not there, or maybe you're upstairs, or you can rent a bedroom when you're out someone's working a night shift you know it suitably syncs up with schedules so your home isn't just laying vacant those are sort of baseline principal values um, but you can look at um, what else does that do or what else does that incentivize and I think that starts to incentivize a market for home-based enterprises mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. things like for example it, it makes you maybe want to curate some more unique sort of spaces so I've noticed um, let's talk about present day some people, some architecture firm, there's one in Australia called Breathe Architecture that has built a project, developed their own project for the principle of renting out through Airbnb. And they made it so that it's almost an advertisement for their own work, but also a unique experience so that people will come and use it. Mm-hmm. In the same vein, looking in the future, you can see um, people start to curate their own experiences. Like at you know, base levels, it might incentivize you to make you know your own uh, personal gym or maybe uh, a wood shop or something like that because these are fewer and far between in terms of general people general functions but maybe you can rent it out and have a personal experience mm-hmm. and you know people like today let's say you live in a city it's very difficult for me to envision creating a wood shop for example in my home i can't really justify the expense per the square footage but when you go into the go into it with the idea that in the future i can rent this out and more people will want to rent this out my wood shop out because there aren't too many around you know you can start to embark on these passion projects that these this this avenue of income can provide for you. So not only does it make it feasible to um, enter housing markets that you wouldn't otherwise do, can start to increase quality of life or the unique curation of space and puts earning incomes and retail into the hands of people who just can purchase a home, you know? The interesting thing about about this is like, I'm sitting here thinking about the established way of things in cities and like, and conservative, kind of money making like the American dream is that you have your own house and you have you know all your neighbors and you have security so Mm -hmm. right so it's like privacy and security are something that our parents generation the generation prior and and many generations prior like always valued and put a high premium on right and even now it has there's a very high premium on on privacy and security so but through this model 
those are effectively the two things that are being sacrificed, right? Yeah. It's, it's being able to trust others to use the same space as you and potentially have others be around valuables or things that you have. And that's since the idea of minimalism, like you were talking about, you're basically, you're basically counting on people buying into this idea of, of having their, having their goods or their like private belongings either trusted to be around other people in their own home or like in a separate space. Yeah. How does this model attract people who are potentially concerned about the Mm -hmm. sacredness of one's own home? Mm -hmm. And I think, I think you actually address some means to secure a sense of mental well-being through like, it looks like just some simple, um, yeah. Reinventions of some typical architectural kits of parts. Right. So, I mean, one thing that we're proposing for people who want to adapt their existing homes to be suitable for this um, this time rental, this four-dimensional uh, housing situation is that we have sort of a kit of elements. Um, a couple of them that we've uh, suggested is uh, one, a retractable stair. So this s- sort of works for uh, the kind of typical arrangement where people have living <laughs> or kitchen, dining sort of downstairs. Uh, I like this. Yeah, <laughs> this is cool. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, like it's a very typical layout. So it's something that addresses it. Let's say you have a living um, dining room downstairs, which is a pretty typical model. And then upstairs, you have all the bedrooms. Uh, very typical American model, but also all throughout the world. You know, just makes we're, sense. we're actually sitting in one right now. Yeah. And in, and in a weird, like yeah. unintentional arrangement, like, right? yeah. we're almost utilizing your model perfectly exactly. for the fact yeah. that <laughs> yeah. we've temporarily yeah. taken over the first um series of shared spaces of the living room the dining room and the kitchen we've modified it to an impromptu podcasting session while my two roommates are using the upper floors as kind of relaxation dwellings and if we almost pretended that we were three outsiders with the retractable staircase we've almost now optimally utilized the entire house house like housing environment yep um, in every aspect of those who dwell and those who visit for both um, dwelling and business. So let's take that step further. Like, what? Okay, so what if we were outsiders and that stair was retracted? Like, yeah. And then Natalie wanted to come down and, and make toast. What, so what would she do? Like, give a warning? No, that is. A, I think that would be a <laughs> sacrifice. The sacrifice is that you would you would know to some degree that when you were renting it out, you lose access to part of your home. So I think you have to plan it. So you would you would do it based on hourly things, but you what that might end up having is that people might end up putting different things in their room so that they would you know they would have more comforts in their own bedroom, kitchenette. Yeah, maybe. Um, Or they just simply understand like, okay, I'm going to bring stuff up. I'm going to go to my room and I'm going to read or I'm going to work and I'm not going to go outside of it. That's that's a little idealistic. Like sometimes like the best Airbnbs that I've stayed in are like you have. You obviously have like completely separate entrances. Like it's an AD, you have an accessory dwelling unit in the back. We stayed in one in Portland where right. like this lady had like a cool shed and she made it into like a little bedroom. Right. And we walked through her like driveway and like we saw her a couple times. But like that's the ideal situation. But in a situation where you don't have completely separate entrances. Yeah. So, I mean, mm-hmm. that's that's the difference between um, when you're dealing with something that is going to be adapted for um you know, retroactive use, it's not going to be the perfect situation, but we're sort of proposing a kit of elements that can start to make it that transition to this new ideology a little bit easier. But like when you start to 
design yeah. based on this, you know, you'll start to make new separate entrances or you can segregate parts of your home so that it's optimized. For this right. So you'd, you'd, you'd like build a ladder out the back or something. Who knows? Like just say, yeah, fuck it. Take the window. Like, exactly. Yeah, a little fire yeah, escape yeah, pole yeah. or something like that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, like there's fire escape ladders, which are like a very crude way of getting out a back window, but you've proposed a retractable stair yeah yeah like so an internal an, retractable stair exactly the retractable stair would be perfect in a situation like this where you yeah. want to just be upstairs or maybe let's say you're sleeping you can you know you want to take a nap for like five hours four hours and you don't you're not going to go you're not going to wake up and go downstairs like maybe someone want to use my living room while i'm gone you wake up and you have like 70 dollars in the back whatever mm-hmm. yeah. it is you know and maybe maybe there is a second um incarnation of the interior retractable stair that actually is a yes. exterior, exterior retractable stair. God, so in the so, cool. so in the yep. case that like say um, David and Natalie who are upstairs, if we're renting out the space until 10 p.m., yeah, exactly. they have a means of direct egress. Mm. Exactly. Yeah. Out out the back or something like that. Yeah. Because like we're 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 in a scenario where we are literally like reenact like we are enacting this scenario in real time in that we represent three people who would potentially be renting out the first floor space. And the accommodations that David and Natalie upstairs had to make were they showed up a little bit early, they made their dinner, they brought their dinner upstairs, they're now on their computer, they've tucked themselves away for the evening, and they have to decide whether they're going to have zero access through the downstairs, or if they would buy into, say, the exterior egress kit of part element or something. And And, like, you're basically balancing the incentive model of, like, okay, what like is it worth it what what level of money for them to make is it worth it for them to sacrifice their privacy exactly and if the money is if the equity and the money and the the overall incentive is worth it then yeah everyone's so, gonna say yes there's a price for everything you that's know what I, mean? Exa- I mean that's exactly the model and it, the thing is i mean it's not it's an obviously an opt-in system this isn't like we're saying this is what's going to happen like if you want to do this you can and there are lots of ways that you can make it palatable for your lifestyle so some people will be happy with different levels of control and i mean you could obviously see how technology becomes an impact and this we're proposing is an app-based system obviously mm-hmm. but um you know you that can start to tie in with you know um locked cabinets and things like that as soon as someone enters um you know it it, it really just depends like i mean the trust model has already worked you know like to some degree, there's always going to be like we are already trust other people to drive us around. Yeah, Uber, yeah. Oh, we'll, car to go. I I literally yep, yeah. got the password in Seattle. Too. Yeah, got the password to go into some random apartment building's garage building. Yeah. Walked up to a car, then used the cell phone to open up the the car door. Got ki- car keys out of the um, the mm. ceiling visor and drove some guy's car around for 13 hours. For thirty bucks. Like, wait, was this car? Wait, wait, that's not car to go. That's car, a different one. Car to go is like uh, this is where someone it? lent you their car. This is a different one. That's right? one of the rideshare Maven or I've I mean, seen no. this. It's just like Maven, but it's another one. Yeah, yeah. Got you. Car to go is like is like they oh, don't okay, care yeah, car, the car. Yeah, like, they have that, their own cars. Yeah, 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 but, yeah, yeah. but this was I forget what it's called. Literally, but it was literally, a real person gave you their car. Wow, that's interesting. Like a real person gave me their car, like in a town I'd never been to, for thirty dollars for thirteen hours, and I drove it down a highway into like a park, like across gravel roads and i returned it and nobody else in that apartment building had no idea that i had access to the like yeah. to their kind of what's, um, what's interesting security. about that though is like that like that we're like the perfect audience for that and like we buy like if i explain that to like my parents they'd be like are you kidding me i would oh, never would, i would never give my car insane. i would never give my car to somebody well, like that's, there's barriers that like generationally and like like what you're used to you know it, there's a big barrier there i, I mean i don't want to 
this is not not just come across as anarchist, but like the idea, <laughs> I mean, the idea. Famous last word. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, governments have existed for the longest time to be mediators for the goodwill of people, and it's but it doesn't really take into the account that I feel like a lot of people in general are decent. I mean, that might be a, a sweet view, but yes. I mean, if you have mechanisms that somehow reward and incentivize good behavior, there's no reason to think if those technologies are democratically and universally placed that people won't act in the be- in their own best interest. Like yeah. you already have Craigslist, which has no guarantee of safety. You know, eBay was there where they start to put their own protections behind it, but Craigslist is just a vehicle and a forum for people to talk in any way. And the only guarantee of security and safety you have is that they can provide you an anonymous email. Yeah. And people have to use their best judgment. And people do get ripped off on Craigslist. But I've sold so many things. I've bought so many things. I found a roommate in Craigslist, homes. Oh, I found some of the best roommates in my life yeah. through Craigslist. A yes. parking spot. Yeah, I guess yeah. exactly. So but it's trust between people. And it, it seems it seems like uh, antiquated to not believe that you should be able to rely on the majority of people. Well, like we basically had to go from anybody would drive anybody around any time to the 60s when we had a couple of serial killer murderers and a media that went wild for almost 40 years of no car sharing outside of taxis for Uber to actually seem like a good idea in like the late um, 2000s. Um, So it took us 40 years to for technology to catch up to our emotions right. of how we signaled safety for getting in a stranger's car. Right. And I think it's like, there's something about the fact that it's attached to like my visa card and I have an identity and they have an identity mm-hmm. and there's the license plate and, and like there's a social media aspect to it. Yep. There's like, there's now a level of social documentation that's built into this 100%. that makes it somewhat safer. So that's what that's, I mean, that's the thing that people always paint as the, uh, you know, the black mirror dystopian future in that we all are, you know, evaluated and constantly looked at. But right now what we're doing is we're displacing that level of trust instead of doing it to a technology that might not be appropriately monitoring our behavior. We're displacing any individual sort of uh, security or reputation and we're displacing that onto a government that can sort of monitor mm-hmm. and sort of um, give credence to you your values as a human being or in, well in a way like you're like you're saying the government but i actually think in a weird in a in a way i don't think it's so much government as we've now just grown the identity of the small tribal environment where now like if you lived in a tribe, what's the adage? Um, it takes a village to raise a child. Mm-hmm. And the whole mentality is that you, if a child's born into like a village, everybody in that village is, has eyes on the child. Midsummer. Okay. Yeah. Midsummer <laughs> has, has, has eyes on the child. But then if you were say off on your own homestead and you were just kind of in the middle of the woods with your own like little house, then suddenly you are the sole, you're solely responsible for yourself and your children and, and your family's well-being. Sure. And I think that the model of just hitchhiking is you're in that solo environment. And the model of the Uber is we've now created a digital village mm-hmm. where everybody has eyes on the village, including the government as well. Sure. But but in a way, I think it's like we almost feel double secured by the openness of the data where the community has eyes backed by the legality of the government that's going to like find somebody if they do right. something wrong. Right. Like I took a cab the other day. I take cabs occasionally if I have like cash on me or if I'm going like a mile and it's rain or if it's really? raining or if it's raining and I know the Uber's going to be like really expensive. 
and I, I got out of a cab and it's, I had, uh, it's nine dollars. If your Uber is over nine dollars, it's cheaper to take a taxi to work. What? Hmm. what are you talking about? Oh, to work. Yeah, right, so, to, to so, our work. So gotcha, like, yeah. so I got had gotcha. this. I took a cab the other day. I left my phone on the seat, and I like right when I was getting out, I realized it, and I like, I got back. Like I was like, oh god, I grabbed my phone, but I realized like. If I had just like I was using cash, if I had just like closed the door and let the guy drive away, like I was That's like, it. oh my god, I would never have. Like with an Uber, you can just like text the guy or the yeah. you know person, call them, like figure it out, like where they exactly they were. Like it's just interesting to that like a cab almost seems like so much more like <laughs> unsafe at this point to me now, or like un. There's so many more like unknown yeah. factors now. I mean, there's a there's a digital trail with Uber. Yeah, there's something that will always be as a there as a record. But when I got out of the cab, I paid the guy in cash. I'm like, thank you for your service, sir. Yeah, you know, and it's like that was a thing, and that happened, and that's good, and that's it's it. over now. It's yeah. done. No one can trace me. Great. I mean, that's why they like, still have those, you know, f- track your trip and everything like that. So basically, there people you just need to find ways to digitally safeguard trust. Mm-hmm. And like you said, it's almost more. You almost place more trust in the Uber because there is that log in the history that kind of follows with it. And I think we can start to place trust outside of established systems, and we can start to base trust on digital systems that verify strangers that you have no idea about. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think that's something that you have to give something up, as in a person-to-person trust and just trust and have faith in a, another system. But being able to place your faith in that system will help you reap so many different rewards, you know? A natural next step is it seems like these technologies are more democratic in some sense in that people are just verifying people. Mm-hmm. And it seems like power is not centralized among a chosen few. And it does seem like, you know, if you can delegate your home or your car, like what's to say you, would, you wouldn't you would delegate? Brian, I'm, so, I'm so glad that you kind of doubled back to this thought because it was making me think about the power dynamic of a developer versus mm. a um, private owner of a house. Mm. And the developer, the trend seems to be to minimize the dwelling unit and maximize the amenities oh, yeah. so that you can fit the most amount of people in a building mm-hmm. and then you sell them on the idea that you're going to spend very little time in your room and look at all these great amenities and we were able to shove 30 more people into this building mm-hmm. and we kept the rent exactly the same. Yeah. And it's because we just optimize the amenities. Yeah. But in a way, by doing it this way, the private home actually stays exactly the same size. And you've just liberated the, um, the benefit of the spatial amenity by having a private owner yeah. rent out the space more so than a developer who is potentially going to minimize dwelling space to maximize the incentives to get more people into their building. Yeah, it's exactly. like every man equity kind of thing. Yes. Right. You don't have to have $10 million of capital to, to start something. You and can, you can have your own, you can have $10,000 of capital to start something. And, and I think what like keeps that, what would, what keeps the model beautiful and equally balanced is the fact that the homeowner also dwells in the same place that they're renting out Yes, where the developer never needs to no. move into the micro apartment <laughs> and, yeah. and they don't need like to. eat, eat out of a microwave yeah. on a, on a countertop that has two square feet while they sit on their bed, yeah. but they've got that great gym down the hallway. Mm-hmm. I mean, people will always talk about incentive systems, but you know, when you start to disassociate from the end product, you know, you'll get a worse, you'll get a worse environment. Like when people have to live and reside and are close 
to the things that they own and operate and their faces attached to them, you start to see higher quality things. And like even in today's market, I started to see a difference. I um, mean, you know, I work in architecture firm and some of you know, the buildings that we design are, you know, multifamily apartments. But even within them, you can see the difference in terms of developers who create apartments for the purpose of selling them immediately. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yes. And versus those who hold on to them and rent them out. Yeah. One of them, they're faceless. They build it, and it's just an asset. Their success is based on um, building it and selling it and how much that difference in the profit they make on it is. But owning and operating comes to a long-term sort of reputation-based thing because they have to interface with people, mm-hmm. and that is also tied to their portfolio. Yeah, and we deal with both, too. And it's interesting, like, the developers that are flipping buildings are just taking advantage of the system that's there for them. And they see exactly. the, the huge economic benefit of, like, buying a building for, like, you know, $10 million and selling it for 30. Like they, they're like, Oh, we could do this in two years. If we just put this much into it, like it's a simple math equation for them. You know, they're like, Oh, well, why wouldn't we, you know? And it's like, um, but right. When you have like the built in kind of management company there from the very beginning, it's, it's a whole other ball game. So most affordable housing projects that we work on, like will not happen unless there's some government tax incentive or there's some government funding. Like it's a, it's a fact in DC, you apply for the low income tax yeah. credits or whatever and like you apply for the four percent or the nine percent credit, right? And like yeah. if you don't get it, the I, project literally doesn't happen. I actually I mean, I I think that's something that's worth talking about because especially if people aren't involved in the artificial industry, it's always I always find it funny when developers like to tout the fact that they have affordable housing as part of their project when most a lot of the times when it's over a certain size, it's mandated by the government. Yeah. And the other time is when um they are providing um, inclusionary zoning, as they call it here, or affordable housing, because they get other benefits in terms of increased square footage for their building, increased FAR. Yeah, right. And it's just, it's not, it's not a, it's not it's an not altruistic, altruistic thing. Yeah. yeah, I saw the word altruism on there. Yeah. And I was like, <laughs> it's yeah, we're doing this because we're gonna also make more money and it's, we're gonna market the altruism. And, and it's that's how like that's that's in one system where governments are trying to instill the best values for people, and they have to do it. It's a check and balance on the, on the capitalistic system. So I guess what I'm saying is like, say you take this Airbnb development, right? Airbnb is like the developer and they build 100 units on a vacant lot in the city. Do you think there's like a path for like, A, like zoning to approve that and governments to approve that? Like, do, like the other, clearly there's going to be some huge hurdles in like, in in actually making that happen. You can't stop people from renting out parts of their home. In the same, well, you can stop it in the same way that people make airbnb illegal or uber illegal in some cities but it's something that has rules have to be made for like how mm-hmm. is someone going to tell you yeah you can stay in my home but you have to pay me like ten dollars a day like, you can do that now. you can stop that you definitely can yeah governments do and people i get what you're saying idealistic i really do i believe in what you're saying yeah but governments do stop airbnb they do well, they have, they're they're supposedly There's, supposed to step in when um well like health safety and wellness um have deteriorated deteriorated to a point Mm -hmm. that it would be detrimental to society to maintain the status quo of whatever operation is handling, which is why we have like food safety laws and like active kitchens and like why Airbnb is has now been standardized. And we had like taxi like regulations and unions for like forever. And, and, and Uber had to be regulated in some kind of thing. So what I imagine is like, let's say that like, um, um, Silicon Valley guy A develops an app to where you could time timeshare people's homes. Um, it would probably blow up. People would use it 
like throughout an entire city. And then the first time that somebody died of asphyxiation because one of the um, like living rooms that like six people were using as a band location died because there was like wasn't ventilated wasn't ventilated properly then suddenly the company would um become um they would have language in their app that says we're not liable for any deaths yeah but but (laughs) then the government would step in and then ask the company to either shut down or to um, create a standard of health safety and wellness that it had to abide by and then there would probably be a service charge or a service fee and people would get ranking systems and stuff like that so it's like it's almost like asking for forgiveness you know what I mean? Like, yeah. just do the thing first, and then, like, yeah. if the government wants There's to shut like you a, down, they'll shut you down. There, like, I feel like this idea is going to, yeah. it could live in a gorilla state, and then the first time that the gorilla state kills somebody, then it's going to turn into an Uber or yeah. an Airbnb and become regulated. Yeah, but, I mean, at the same time, I mean, this is, you're right. I mean, you said I was idealistic. But, like, you do hope that governments or things in general want better options to prevail, you know? I mean, I don't think they would... Some part of me hopes that they don't. I mean, I think it would be bogged down in lots of legal issues, but I hope it would at least, public clamoring would at least want or force an issue to at least be considered. And I think other there may be other regulations being placed, but I mean, in the same way that like something as crazy as like Elon Musk's Hyperloop or something like that, like you know, ideas that sort of push forward society shouldn't be railed against. But Mm -hmm. I mean, again, you never know when you have to when you have to go through legal stands, which is why I think. You know, the Gorilla Avenue makes sense in the beginning. Like, even now, let's say um, in D.C., weed is legal, for example, mm-hmm. but you can't buy or sell it. Um, I don't know if that's still true. I think can that's still true. You can... Uh, it's, it's like a gifted, gifted system. Yeah. Exactly, which is where you can go You can go and place an ad morning, you can buy a T-shirt, and mm-hmm. they'll give you a nug of weed as yeah. size as I go. So there, I mean... Go on the tour of the History of Weed Museum. <laughs> I mean, the thing is, like, what we're... Yeah. Well, the thing is, like, what we're proposing is not something that people can't already do without the app. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. you can rent out your home to someone. Like, I mean, you let your friend crash on a couch. Maybe you ask them to pay $10 if you're a shitty friend. But, um, you know, this is something that it's just sort of an avenue for people to communicate. Yeah. And you can sort of phrase it like that. So there's a, there's a limit. Like, there's a specific limit that society has set, right? Like, you can run a home business with less. You can have yourself and one, less than one employee without filing for a business license. Like I looked at this when Austin and I were trying to, like, consolidate this business. Like, if you actually provide a service, if you have, like, more than four people visiting a day to your home office, it's technically, like, a business, and it's not allowed. Or, like, say you're doing, say you're doing, like, um, say you have, like, a hair salon in here, and you're using chemicals that are, like, could be detrimental, you have to have a permit for, then it, like, kicks you into being, like, a business. So, like, Hmm. if I had, like, a business here where I met with more than four people a day, meeting-wise, I technically would be, like, breaking the law. Yeah. So it's interesting, like, like there's, there is some, like, home-based business-defined laws, but they're clearly very outdated, and they're clearly not, like, looking forward to the future. They're basically just saying, like, yeah, you can work from home if you're working on a laptop and you don't, like, hold meetings, and you yeah. have, like, <laughs> but then no one's going to, like, report how many meetings they have. Like, it's basically trying to prevent, like, um, you, like, running a full-scale business. It's, tr- like, for, the codes now try to prevent you from running a business. They're just saying, you can do mm-hmm. it if you, if you want. But I could, I could totally see this, this, like this idea lives right on that edge, right? It's in that, it's in that Craigslist world right before it becomes that Uber world. Mm -hmm. Right. All of the kit of parts are very rationalized kits of parts that we use in a lot of both historical and contemporary, like architectural models. We're 
like for what Brian's proposing, you're just empowering the every man mm-hmm. to say, um, sign up for this app. And maybe the app has the infrastructure that you can order a partition online. Mm-hmm. The partition shows up in a, like a U-Haul or something like that. You install it as this partition that separates a front and a back part of your house. And then suddenly you can now timeshare your living room as a recording studio for six hours of a day. And yeah. then when you get home from work, it's back to your full house. And yeah. so it's, it's like, like, it's like, where does this want to be? Does it want to be gorilla Craigslist or does it want to be in that kind of Uber yeah. world where there's kind of a little bit of regulation and you can buy these kits of parts and you can install them and it's time shared. And yeah. I, I, I would love to see it in the Uber model, yeah, but when, as soon as you cross that line into the Uber model, it gets regulated and then fees could go up. And I mean, this, I mean, to me, this starts to uh, pull at a different concept, which starts to become the difference between concepts and reality. Um, you know, that's why there are like idea men and people that change. And like, so this, all of everything that we're talking about today was born out of an open design competition model. And that is, I think is a very sort of controversial or interesting avenue because basically there's a prompt that has no real end. There's a financial incentive, but, um, you know, you pay to enter it to begin with, and you stand a chance of winning more back. It's almost a bet. But the value, the value that it does have is that it provides some external impetus to research or put time into a concept or a theory that would never pay you back to research otherwise. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this can start to get at the ideas of overall, overall or large-scale large change in a way that doesn't necessarily have immediate impacts. So I think that's where the, where the value of these sort of research or theoretical exercises come in. And it's just kind of, it's almost like a, a sad reality to have to face that, you know, good ideas aren't good enough, you know. But this is like 100% going to happen. I, th- I, I genuinely think that Airbnb is moving towards this model and they are doing it in terms of incremental change in getting us to accept the idea of other people first. Yeah. And then, you know, the Nito thing is one more step. And then I think... I think they will be moving towards if I mean this is I mean Airbnb if you're listening like <laughs> I'll, like look look at my project take this idea <laughs> if you're not going this way already this is where you should be going yeah mm-hmm. I mean but the thing is like what's interesting is like um I, I'm I'm still going back to this like single home like adapting something that's a, a home that exists and like the new model the development model like the Airbnb is still a company design where the people at the top make a ton of money yes so and it but it like their their goal is to empower empower the people that are making money like like evelyn's um aunt and uncle for instance have a airbnb in sperryville in virginia and we stayed there and they have like an accessory dwelling unit in, in the and like off their house and they have two units and they rent it out every weekend because they're near the yeah. appalachian trail and they oh great people just hikers stay there all the time and like they it's been a really really positive thing for them and they make they basically pay off their mortgage with it and they make a lot of money and they haven't had any problems and it's like it's really they're almost operating an independent business but I wonder what the actual breakdown between like how much money Airbnb, like the corporation actually makes off of them. Um, yeah. you know, cause they provided the, they provide the back, they provide the infrastructure, the app, the yeah. exposure and the, um, potential for, for clients. Whereas like, whereas like now 
you know, in reality, like if they did this a hundred years ago, it's called a bed and breakfast. They just do it on their own. Yeah. But people from a hundred miles away wouldn't know it was there. Yeah. So what's like the line between like, you know, how that corporation values it's like services versus like how that immediate home owner of like is compensated. Like Uber is the Uber drivers have been on strike for their Uber drivers, like clearly feel undervalued. And where at first Uber drivers were being like, they were getting, you know, compensated very well. And like, so it's like, there's this, you know, you know where I think the line actually lives Mm. between the difference of the physical object and the ephemeral time. Mm -hmm. So if I built the partition, okay, I'm the owner of the partition and Mm -hmm. I could just charge people for the space. But if I was the owner of an app and I was the owner of the concept of renting out that time, then it turns into a business model with a pyramid structure. Mm -hmm. So if I own a physical car and I just pull up next to somebody and I say, hey, you want to ride for $5? They give me $5 and I take them down the street. But the owner of the Uber app who's created the infrastructure that controls the ephemeral time and controls the safety of that ephemeral time, then suddenly it's shifted into a pyramid structure. So there's almost this like shift between the anyway. gorilla Craigslist objectness of things and the bureaucracy, ephemeral, conceptual, like sapien esque, like Ooh. social identity of uh, what's the guy's name? Y'all, the sapiens guy. Oh, Harari, yeah. Yeah, Harari, y'all. Yeah. Like, it's the difference between trading seashells to each other and having a conceptual identity of money. And yeah. so it's, as soon as it goes from an object to a concept, that's when there's like uh, there's a superstructure that like falls on this thing. Yeah, yeah. So maybe if now the, the breakdown is like 95.5 is like Uber profiting versus the actual Uber driver, maybe the better balance is like there's like a 70-30 model or like a 50-50 model or there's some sort yeah. of there's some more like there's some more incentive on for the actual uh, localized owner or like owner of the car, owner of the house, like to be. Yeah, like protected on another level. Like I almost feel like Brian, you could start a business. You could start either two businesses. One business where you are just building these partitions, and people can purchase the partitions, and then they operate their kind of home separation however they want to do. And that's one business where you are just the provider of objects. Or you start a second business service. where it's a service of time acquisition and time allotment. Yeah. And the people can figure out how they're going to separate their house. But you're really the person who's no. um, managing people's locations and, and activation of these times. Yeah, I mean, I definitely think the more valuable part of that is the app-based, the service, um, mm-hmm. in the same way that Uber operates. And mm-hmm. that they don't have any physical properties. The yes. only thing that they have is the app and the interface between that. And you're operating on a software base, and your fee is based on connection. Yes. You're providing the avenue of connection. And I think what comes with that is the fact that it is a concept more so than a service. Like it, you, what they, they were the originators of the concept. And that's why you see a lift coming up and all these other brand new ride sharing things that we've talked about, the spinoffs. Mm. Um, and then it's sort of just a fight to see, you know, who can provide the best value and who has most people on it. Mm-hmm. And I don't, you're asking me, how do you return levels of power that, you know, there's some degree of inequity versus, with you know the driver versus the association of Uber, for example, as a 
very complex question. I have no answer. No, yeah, I guess it was more yeah. of a general <laughs> question. But like, it, it seems inevitable that the it seems inevitable that the bigger Uber gets, the less power the drivers have. Is there right. a way to ma- maybe maybe retain I some mean, driver power other than like striking and st- you know? Like I mean, it, yeah, I, think, I, don't I think I mean that's I mean that's the argument of capitalism is that yeah you have you, there's a concept that comes out there you have ownership over a little bit and then other people can develop and base it off of that and then people will gravitate to what's best mm-hmm. and that stops people who are just original or innovators from just becoming tyrants mm-hmm. yeah I, I think like the power shift is who's in control of the concept of the time aspect of the space because if you're the owner of your own home you control 100 percent of what some renter is doing in your home Not necessarily though because laws well, tell you, I, yeah, like, like, yeah, but follow the logic. Like well, outs- outside but, of like the the like the city's ordinances, if you control the home, if you rented out a space, you could say establish home rules for your space. I mean, yes and no. I'm just saying, like there there is a lot of control in homes that are in a in a in a city. I mean, really. Yeah, but but like let's say that you had a home and then you sold your space in your home to an app the app is now in control of the home rules of your space. And so it's like whether you're selling the ephemeral identity of the rules and regulations of your own home to yourself or to some third-party entity, and the more that that third-party entity has control over the the ephemeral identity of your space, the more that the original owner is going to be marginalized. The more that like the Uber driver has yeah. to abide by a pool or a standard or an XL identity, they've now lost the original identity of their vehicle, and they're just a physical object conforming to the rules of a software. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, yeah. I don't know how you put a check and balance on it, but in the ideal world, mo- all the system is is a series is is just a way to connect people in the most efficient way. And to like highlight, you know, this space is available near you. This is how long it's being rented, available to be rented for. And then people can just interface with it just in that way. And the rest of it is up to individual owners. Like the, the, the intention of the system is to give additional, um, additional independence and um, opportunities to owners not to limit it. You know? mm-hmm. So do you think Uber's ideal situation in like 10 years would just be to have a fleet of like 10,000 driverless cars and yeah, that oh, yeah. no money like no money goes to anyone but Uber. Exactly. Yeah. Right. That, that's their yeah. optimal that's like, thing. That's like the be the optimal situation. Yeah. And and then the the, <laughs> the evil black mirror version of Brian's example oh, yeah. is that that question. these <laughs> homes aren't actually owned by anybody but yeah. these homes are owned okay. by enterprises. Owned by this, is a, this is a great transition. Yeah. They're just the like second time part shit. of our project. Oh, yeah, okay. So take us there. Okay, so the second part of our project inve- imagines uh, a new development based on the principles of 40 housing. This is uh, this time-based uh, app or this time-based interface. And and um, what that starts to look at is what would you do if you were designing a large-scale domestic model based on this 4D concept? And what that what that looked like to us is that you would have function-specific modules so that you would rent out a specific room or f- that is fine-tuned to a function, let's say sleeping, let's say eating, socializing, or anything else like... Um, you know, any, anything that the human range of experiences can envelop, you know, and then everything is based on a time-based system. So that anything you could want to do in a sheltered human environment 
can be provided as a time-based system in a private basis. And um, the financial implications of that are kind of the same thing that you're leading towards. You know, that's not something that an individual would buy. Mm -hmm. That's something that governments or large-case corporations would be able to buy into, and they would create these different modules that people would be able to rent on their own leisure. And then you wonder that, you know, if that does become the black mirror. So you're, so you're saying like if you're in this building, you, you you could potentially sleep in a different room every night, every night. So you like walk through the building and you just say like, I feel like sleeping right now. And you just see an open room, you pop into it and you come out. Exactly. Or you say, I feel like going to the library or study or the community room. Like you're basically, it's basically like hyper minimalism because you don't actually carry anything else than what's on your back. I mean, back. it's hyper minimalism. Or you have a locker room and you keep your stuff in there. Yes. Right. So that, there, there's like, a, there's like a, I mean, that's a, that's a really good point. Um, one thing that is not, um, one thing that is not specifically outlined, is that what what do you need in this world that has to sort of stay constant? Mm -hmm. And what you talked about as storage, I think, is something that you know, if you just have one home base, mm -hmm. you know, stuff that you can just sort of keep, and you can sort of go from development to development. Let's say you stay in one area for, I'm going to be here for a couple months. You know, I would like to have, you know, I want to be guaranteed somewhere that I can keep something. Yeah. But other than that. Yeah, I mean, I think you'd be looking at, uh, I mean, we're already starting to do that uh, in terms of our retail markets. Like, mm -hmm. we have retail for almost every human function. Like, we, um, I mean, hotels for sleeping, for example, food, delegates, or restaurants, so many places don't even have tiny and smaller and smaller kitchens because people don't have to cook. They can go and eat out. But this sort of provides opportunities for, you know, that to become, um, instead of, relying on other people you rely on yourself for individual experiences and this this the space or the room is fine-tuned to um, accommodate your need at that specific time i mean in a way you you've just described a city though yes like you've described the yes the accommodations of a city now compressed into the accommodations of of an apartment building. Right. Because if we think about it, like all three of us are renters yep. in a city and we've just chosen to have a year long contract to exist within three different cellular nodes within a active urban environment where we can choose to either eat in our homes or go out to a restaurant. And in a way you're asking the question, can this model of renting a, space off of a lease then be even like even more broken down into these like individual rooms i'm saying it's yeah to some degree but also i mean it does seem almost arbitrary what we have included as a basis or a necessity in the places that we own or like you know in a home we say everybody let's say every single person has a bedroom everyone needs one and a bathroom everyone needs one Almost every home has a kitchen or living room. That's part of it. And then some people will shrink on that. And then other rooms, other homes, you know, they'll include things like gyms if they have more size. You know, maybe they'll have, like, an office room, you know, a guest bedroom, things like that. And then you start to, like, I mean, to some degree, like, you know, there are more parts of human life that we need, you know, as human beings. Like, we have, we delegate to the public things like parks and things like that. And libraries, for example, you don't need a library in every home. You know, let's, the, let's have the government provide that or someone else provide mm -hmm. that. So what's to say that like why 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 is some things delegated outside of your own personal sphere of ownership but other things aren't? And I guess this notion is saying that everything can be and you can use things as you need it and 
I think to some degree it embraces more of a trend towards a nomadic lifestyle or the mm-hmm. idea that you don't need home base. And that is what this is. This whole notion is built off. And it's still the idea that it doesn't have to be like this. You don't have to opt in, but it's there as a realistic option for people who are visiting or traveling to different places. Yeah, but I would, I would raise the question, what's the difference between a wolf and a bee? Because, hey, like, both, like, you could consider both of them nomads in, in different regards in that neither one has any physical, like, possessions, but a wolf has the entire environment to exist in, and a bee ultimately goes back to the single cellular like environment that they're sleeping in. Yeah. And so the the wolf has the entire environment to like choose anywhere they want to sleep. Right. And the bee works all day and then goes back to this room and then collapses. Exactly. And I would consider <laughs> both of them like nomads. Funny imagery of a bee. Sorry. Yeah. But, uh, but tough but like, day out there being a bee. <laughs> Glad I get to go <laughs> home to my go, go home and take a rest. <laughs> but like but like yeah, really, like, uh, but that is, I think, the strength of the concept in that it can be established to any degree of nomad. If you're a wolf, or if you're a bee, what is that? If you're a a bear, what other animals? What other animals have homes? I don't know. <laughs> okay, I think all the well, animals have homes. <laughs> but, but I'm, but, th- but yeah, I'm thinking about the two extremes between like the the nomadic um, Indian who like has no concept of like ownership. Native American. Is it Native American? Okay, sorry, Native American. Like first First Nations people. Like oh, that's better. Yeah. For, like yeah. like the concept of a First Nations individual who has no concept of like a permanent ownership and they can be very transient over an environment right. and any location is their home versus the contemporary American who lives in a, a huge sub- place with way too much too many rooms. Well, I mean, way, it's way too many things. Or the the like the contemporary millennial who lives in a sub 400 square foot right. environment and they have no possessions, but they've also chosen to confine themselves into a singular like home base. That's, I mean, that's, that's, that's awesome. Analogy. I feel like the cl- closest thing it is, it accommodates for all of them, but it starts to suggest a moving to maybe that native American Indian first nations mindset in that sharing becomes the, the primary, um, the primary driver in that everyone, you don't have to cram yourself into a small personalized space, but you can achieve a reasonable amount of spatial, um, an independent spatial uh, concern while sharing with other people. And there is a freedom to where you can move in terms of, you know, the wolf mindset. Yeah. And I think in order to extract happiness from the, that model, we have to reinterpret the way that we identify with these spaces Mm -hmm. because if we see an individual room as our singular home base we're the b i I feel like we can either fall into a mindset into we sacrifice giving away all of our space and we end up becoming depressed cellular prison people or we reinterpret what it means to have an ownership of space and if every it's it's like um the difference between a scarcity and a um, opportunity, yeah, like a scarcity or an opportunity <laughs> mindset. Feast? It's like famine or feast mindset. Sorry, it's like, this is a great point. like scarcity or opportunity based mindset. If ever if one single cellular space is your home, you're going to be depressed because it's 400 square feet. But if every possible home is open to you, 
then suddenly every home is a place for you to take a nap. So I think we just need to decide whether we're going to be a wolf or a bee in this mindset. You're basically just scaling up your place though, right? So like you're, you're basically scaling your home identity to the whole development. To the world. Well, Well, there's still an exterior bounds of this proposed development, right? Like this, this, um, no, Group of the things. atmosphere is the exterior. I, I mean, I would this, think, gr- this group of yellow, red, and blue no, no. Is, this is this is confined. But what if they were all throughout the country? And what if you buy into systems? So it's it's an extended identity. But I guess what I'm saying is there's a there's a potential there's a obviously a clear value to place based authenticity and and having a space that you can identify with that's like culturally significant that you re- that you repeat cultural acts in and ritual right. Yeah. There's a clear value to that. So you can't just like. Completely, no. Completely get rid of that, right? So that, how, that right. is, I think that that's exactly what Austin. That's the that's the that's the really that, good that's question. That's the thesis you know? of what I'm saying. Yeah. Is, yeah. is yeah. where if 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 you uh, you consistently move like what to what degree is a is the notion of home intrinsic to human happiness or yes. human like satisfaction? And yes. like, does this notion of a nomad lifestyle yeah. completely away from it, or is it because do, do nomads thrive because? they find home in different places. Or yeah, different but what places. I'm saying is if you, you have these all over the country, do they all have like a similar feel to them? And when you're in one, you feel like home at the thing. It, it reminds so you of the last one you're at. That's kind of what I'm saying. I heard a, a rumor in uh, Bill Gates' home. You can wear a key card or some sort of identifying feature. And when you walk into a room, um, uh, the paintings are in a digital frame and they will change based on who is wearing the key card when they enter it. Damn, that's wild. It sounds like it. Ex- it sounds like it's not a not real life, but let's just take the example in that it starts to become a curated experience wherever you go, and very personalized to you. I mean, that sounds like a small feature, and I think the uniqueness of space is what makes them exciting. But y- the question is, to what degree do you need to find some level of familiarity when you go from place to place on a constant, consistent basis? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Because it does seem like. It does seem like, you know, like I go on vacation for a long time or I go like traveling and I love, I need to see new things, but I do always look forward to coming to home. Mm-hmm. So like, so, so this model clearly is geared towards like young urban people, urban people, That's, right? Yeah. So how does this well, like? Well, no, it doesn't because you can also be on the home ownership side. So I think, I mean, that's. Yeah, what about the retired couple who's lived in a home their entire life and suddenly they want to see 30 yeah. countries over the next three years? What about families, you know? No. I mean, yeah, but, like, um, people go to summer camp, you know? I mean, to some degree, like, people it's... go to summer camp. <laughs> it becomes... It just... It doesn't become something that changes the way you have to live. It just becomes an option if you want it to be. No, mm-hmm. yeah. I, I, I mean, I'm all, I'm all yeah, for the, it. The Mongolian tribes use yurts and they would just move the same circular drum-like object around the like um, Eurasia countryside and the element that changed wasn't the drum geometry of their yurt but the environment was, yeah. the environment that was around it yeah, and but th- so but it, this isn't moving though no but your potential to move is what's accessible mm-hmm. so like yeah. Brian's projects in Rome but what if this was in Rome in London in Italy in Detroit yeah, and one app controlled and, it all and one app controlled and we actually see these models there's live right. work models yep. mm-hmm. where you can sign a contract with a company that's in 13 different yep. cities mm-hmm. and if you give them uh, I think it's like 48 hours notice you can vacate 
your apartment yep. in New York and then take a plane over to London and they'll have a space available for you in London and you don't own any of the furniture. It's fully furnished yep. and you've just changed your physical location. And so I think what Brian's exploring is how maximal or how minimal do these environments need to be in order for that kind of transient happiness to be accessible yeah so and, say th- and can you provide it to the everyman or does it need to live in this like developer well i think every man is kind of it's interesting it's like kind of a misnomer right like like everything we're describing now is kind of like you have to have money to do it right like no we're the everyman i can put a partition up in the front and and rent yeah. out my front space as well a, we also like make decent stand. salaries i mean i'm just i'm just trying to like flesh out the model right like so say there's um there's one of these in San Francisco. There's one in Chicago. There's one in New York, D.C., sure. Miami, Houston. Those are all American cities. There's, say, there's, say there's 20 of these across the U.S., right? Sure. And that, uh, say you, you have a job where you can work remotely most of the year. Say you, um, you know, you're comfortable being the kind of person that's just traveling here and there, like, every couple months. Like, and, you, you know, now with friendships these days, you can keep track of friends. You see them a couple times a year. It's fine. Like, you, you basically can say, okay, I'm going to pop out of – any given Tuesday, I'll, you're going to leave the Houston location and go to the San Francisco location. And when I get to the, I can, I can leave yellow pod A, I can take all I have on me is basically a backpack. But maybe you have a locker in the one in New York. And you just get to the San Francisco one, and you pop into that one, and it's like it potentially could customize the atmosphere to what you want if you have, like, a key card, like, basically Bill Gates style, right? So, like, is that is that, like, is the goal of the model to, like, uh, and I, this is just an open-ended question, but is the goal of the model to always, like, if you're in a place, if you're in, like, a place, like, a bubble like this, that, like, when you enter, like, the compound, you're, like, you're, that's your home, like, that you're associating that, like, aesthetic with home, you're associating that, like, lifestyle with home, like, there's this kind of pod, you still get to a pod that feels like home, even though all the pods with within the space are random, but you're at this, like, basically controlled development that's still like a home base that you still identify as a home you know what i mean it's almost it almost be like seamless whether you're in the one in houston or you're in the one in la or you're in the one in new york or like is that the is that the goal or is it that like they're all just little one-off places inside people's homes across the world like there's there's two different models that are like they're very different concepts yeah and you know what i mean like is there is there there 13 megapods or is there ten thousand one pods yeah you know what i mean it's, it's like and it's a very different exp- it's a very different yeah and i mean t- telling exploration i mean that's I mean, it's a, it's a great question I, I i don't know i don't know how legitimately looking at the development how you could long term call that home mhm um what's long term year year Max. two years it's i mean by nature it seems transient because you know it's a different person different time and you're like the, hostels the, almost. The average rotation rate for the contemporary employee is about two years. So <laughs> 25 years ago, it was 10 years. Mm-hmm. And now oh. the the average rotation is between two to three years. And you want to do a minimum of two years because there's a feeling of um, uh, like guilt and also... Um, like abandonment mm. if you leave a company um, prior to a year 
and then two years shows an elongated devotion. We're yeah. talking about place-based companies now, too. Uh, sorry, not place-based companies now, too, right? Working yeah. remotely, you can work wherever you want. Yes. Right? Yes. So that's, it's, it's like maybe it doesn't affect the but, model. But so know. we haven't the, – the, this new model of being um, – uh, globe, globe, like having a global contract where you can move around. Yeah. That's that's an emergent model that's just come out within yeah. the last it's, five years. Seems like it pairs well with this housing model. Is what I'm yeah. Kind of yes. Yeah. 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 I mean, I think it would, and I think it also does. It doesn't satisfy the need for someone to settle down, but I think it does bridge the gap for people who are moving from place to place, maybe trying to figure out what. Because this is another, uh, I guess, tangent is that, you know. The mobility people is obviously unprecedented at this point in time in that you can look at countries in the same way that you look at your businesses in that you have the opportunity to look at them as, do I like this place? Like, is this the place that I want to? And if you don't like it, you can move. Mm -hmm. And I think to some degree, this almost gives you the opportunity to trial out locations in a safe, easy way where you can sort of go from place to place and almost try out governments, cultures, life, uh, lifestyles, and settle down in a place that fits for you. But I don't think once you make that decision, you end up in a situation like this. Mm -hmm. I think maybe you start in a place which is this new development, um, you know, room-based thing, and then you buy into the equity of a traditional home ownership or a home ownership that is set up for rental in the future so you can maximize the use of your purchased individual private home. And I think that's how they maybe start to feed into each other in that it, it provides you this this freedom of choice. Mm -hmm. It's like our identities are at the same time, very fluid, but at the same time, identity is something that is, 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 is concrete. It maybe if just concrete to your own person and to, that, you know, your identity, but it's like, I think the, a lot of things that we we've studied in architecture and in design is it attaches like a real value to like the literal like earth that you're standing on, like you, you like a, you are identifying with that place. And like this model seems the, 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 the drawback, I think the only drawback I think is that it potentially like incentivizes non place based like development as like a person, as a culture, it, it, it like, it basically becomes a placeless, a potential like placeless, um, model for how someone lives their, their life which is not at all bad, but I just think that it could potentially feed into some of the, some of the negative, um, um, like qualities associated with like a placeless life. Is that, is that like a, yeah, that's like my, not, not a criticism. That's just like my critical no. kind of like, that's my, my critical kind of like claim on the, on the, the concept. So no. I don't know if you have uh, a that's, I mean, that's, rebuttal to it. Yeah, definitely. You talked about identity being concrete. Uh, something, I mean, I think a core identity might be, but I think it's impossible to know what that is. And I think one way that it reveals itself is change. Mm -hmm. um, when other things change, changes outside of your own personal circumstance or control, what about you stays the same, becomes a really um, integral part. And I think That's place, place, like, I, I mean, I'm in the midst of change. I got, before we started talking on this, I talked to you about you know, I'm going to grad school. I'm going moving to Illinois. Um, I've been, you know, in D.C. for three years now, just working and kind of doing sort of similar stuff. And now I'm going to a new place where I don't know anybody else. I mean, this is change isn't new. I've done change before, but I'm very excited for the opportunity to sort of go into a brand new environment. And I think what happens when you go into a brand new environment with brand new people and 
the notion of who you are to other people is entirely different. Mm-hmm. You have to sort of reinvent yourself without other people's impressions on you at, at a beginning stage. And then I think allowing for that avenue of change um, is the strength of this project. In that, like I just talked about this, the large new development concept where you have the freedom, let's say, to move from country to country as development development underneath the same app provides you this initial um, easing of transition in that you have somewhere that you can go to or rely on and you can sort of use that as a trial period, let's say. And then the next stage of the model allows you to buy into a home ownership model where if you would like to, um, the financial burden of going into, going into that uh, initial home ownership model, which is prohibitive now in some cities, is lessened by the fact that you can rent parts of your home out in the, the secondary model where you can rent out parts of your rooms when you're not using it and turn your own home into a, a commodity. So that starts to put it a national transition where you can start to not just have to settle in one place. Like I was born here. So many people that I've met have been born in a state and they stay there because, you know, it's difficult to move. You know, this procedure eases that transition to new places and also provides an avenue for you to trial and test out the best version of you. Um, I moved around a lot as a child. You know, I spent, I was born in Norway, spent five years there. I moved to Australia, lived six years there. I've been in the U.S. for the last, I guess, 13 years, but I've lived in four different states, or three different states. And um, for a long part, I've been kind of contemplating the nature of what home is, because mm-hmm. to some degree, I felt homeless. Um, not, you know, not homeless in terms of, you know, not having a home, but in terms of having, you know, I have an Australian passport, but I haven't been Australian in a while. I don't have an accent. People would never assume that I'm Australian. I look Indian. I am Indian. My family is Indian. But, I mean, as far as where I live, like, I feel very comfortable in America. And to some degree, I could say that they're all my homes or none of them are. And I feel like that nature or that sort of those transitions in my life, I feel comfortable in them. And I think that if more people were forced to move or had to go through the same things, I think they would have different opinions on change in their life. And I do think that a model like this starts to feed into that that mindset, and I genuinely think more people are adaptable than they think. think pe- I genuinely think that people are more adaptable adaptable than they know of, you know? Um, and, yeah, I guess this, this project starts to ease that transition or make it so that more people can start to partake in the idea that this might not be the place that I end up in. So basically what you're saying, I, I agree, I, basically what you're saying is, like, in the end, if you put your identity through the test of change, whatever's core to your identity is going to stick anyway. So you might as well, it actually gets stronger if you just test it out in different places and different cultures and different kind of situations, especially where you live, which is very core to the the whole concept of your culture. If you, if you constantly test yourself in that, eventually the, the kind of the cream will rise at the top of who, what your actual identity is. Yeah. That's a good point. I mean, we already, we already have that model in terms of, I mean, when you pick products that you buy, like the beer that you bought. I know you like this beer. You've said this before. It's one of your favorite beers. You've tried a bunch of other beers, yeah, right? Mm-hmm. And this one is the one that you like. You don't do that with the place that you live. A lot of people don't, at least. A lot of people stay in the place that they live. But you have the opportunity of this whole world, and you can move. Why not be able to try to find yeah. like, what are the what are You the can odds? always come back. Yeah. What that's, is, basically, exactly. that's the point. Exactly. Yeah, and what are the odds that the place that you started in is the best place for you? It's possible. But, I mean, what are the odds out of all the places in the world? And this sort of... The whole model gives you an opportunity to travel outside of where you are 
and to transition into a long-term ownership mm-hmm. in terms of that. And then, you know, from there, maybe you go into a traditional home ownership model. But this does provide that avenue. And I don't think that's the intention of it, but it, that is a side effect of, of something that it can start to espouse that isn't necessarily part of today's environment. Mm-hmm. So I think a final thought that I'm having right now is this entire time we've been talking about introducing this housing adaptive model and asking the question, how could this housing adaptive model, how would it either positively or negatively affect the people who are transient through this model? But in the last like five minutes, I was actually asking myself the question, how would it actually affect the environment? Plato has this like beautiful allegory called the allegory of the boat. And it, and I'm sure you're both familiar with it, but it essentially, for those listening, it's like the concept is a boat is made out of 100 pieces of wood. It goes off the war and it gets damaged and it loses 50 pieces of wood and it gets rebuilt and the same boat goes off the war again. So it's now 50% the original boat and it's 50% the new boat. And Plato at this point asks his counterpart in the story, is this the same boat? Mm. And the counterpart goes, well, yeah, of course. It's got like the same ship, the same captain. It's made of like the like a lot of the original wood. They've replaced some, but like it's the original ship. Then Plato says, well, the boat goes out the war again. And it just so happens that instead of the front part of the boat, the back part of the boat gets blown off and the 50 original pieces are removed and but the ship like returns and they repair it again so now all 100 pieces of wood are this new ship and so no original piece of the boat is there and he asks his counterpart in the story it's usually like aristotle or somebody and he says is is it the original boat and this is the point where um, plato essentially opens up the audience to feel one of two ways is the boat the original boat because it has the identity or it has some narrative identity as the same boat? Or is it a wholly new boat because the physical properties have changed? And I would beg the question, if you construct a city out of elements that allow the people of that city to be wholly transient at such a rate that the original members of that city are no longer there in, say, six months, is placemaking or a city or the identity of the city, the same environment if you've replaced every plank, AKA the individuals who live in that city. And so like for the last five minutes, I've been thinking of the question, if you create an environment where you allow the substance of, of personhood to be so transient that it can shift overnight, do you actually retain place at that point? And I don't think we need to answer that question. Yeah, that's a good question. But I, but, I, but I almost feel like we've been very focused on the individual and their happiness. But I almost wonder about the quality of environment if you don't allow the environment to have the history of elongated dwelling. Yeah, that's a very good question. I, 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 think, it's, I think you're probably right in being concerned of that. It's almost what just came to mind right now um, is like the trail journal, like on the AT, like someone's there for five minutes, but they leave like a message and then like the messages build over time. And then like over time, everyone gets to read all the messages. And then like there's like an atmosphere at that, like at that, like lodge or like nest or whatever. Right. So it's like Mm -hmm. if you have something like this where people or like the or like a book, like a 
a book where you sign like a bed and breakfast or like an Airbnb, even if someone's only there for a night, like a hostel at like in Rome or a hostel somewhere, like there's like people leave their mark for like a one night or like they make a cool piece of art and put it on the wall or like they, they like share some, they like leave their like contact info and like slowly over time, there's like a, a community built up. that's like very like ephemeral and very, um, like evolving but it's, if, if it's like the same type of transient person like they're gonna leave like maybe some small imprints of like themselves along the way and it, it's almost like more of like a shared collective culture that's like in the air rather than like in the place so maybe maybe that's the the way it's, it adapts yeah i don't know yeah i mean i think the problem with large-scale developments is that it has to cater and transient people is that it has to cater to a large variety of people and it almost starts to ridded of that um essential or unique um atmosphere but i mean i don't think under any circumstance that this would re- entirely replace every part of it in fact you know the existing home model insists that only parts of your home would be rented out mm-hmm. for example um i think what it does is puts a more streamlined version of the relationship between local versus visitor mm-hmm. and i think I do think that that relationship is the most important in that it gives people the idea to stay like there will be there's there's something intrinsic in the cult there has to be something intrinsic in the culture that makes people want to stay and finding and cultivating that culture is what makes visitors turn into locals and I think the end goal would be to have enough people come to try it out trial out a city and then decide that they want to invest their own time and capital into being there and you know what will happen is that the, the best communities will, or, I mean, there's all, always different uh, definitions of best, but, like, different cultures and mindsets will be able to attract the sort of same sorts of people, and then the kinds of people who fit in will be able to influence it based on the environment that that individual place starts to cultivate naturally. Because I think mm. so many things will be defined based on location, weather, climate, things that have come in the past that we can't change to this point. Mm-hmm. You, we're, not, we're not proposing to change everything at all. You know, there will be things, even if we someone tried to, there would be relics that would have to be built upon just even in economic or reasonable uh, logistics. And that that place, that sense of place will never be taken away. And this, the intention of it is to only um, make it better, you know, for people to come in and buy into that idea and make it better into what they see of it. Yeah, I think it's a great, great note to end on. Streamline relationship between the local and the visitor. That like That's going to lead into our next... Mm-hmm. Our next episode mm-hmm. in the suite with Matt and the local and the right. visitor and the mm-hmm. brand. And it's literally perfect. Um, yeah. I think that's it's kind of, I don't have anything else. Yeah. Cool. Brian, <laughs> thanks for coming on, buddy. That Good stuff. Good yeah. to see you again. All right. We're out. All right. Peace, everybody. Hey, everyone. Ken and I just wanted to thank you again for listening to the episode. The Table Sessions podcast is produced and edited by me, Austin Raymond, and Ken Filler and is a product of The Table Sessions Media, a collaborative platform for audio, visual, and written content. Our theme music was created by Dan Filler. You can find more from Dan on bandcamp.com, such as his album, As the Soil Turns Red. If you like what you heard, you can visit our website, thetablesessions.com, to check out our full range of content. You can also follow us on Instagram at Table Sessions, where we post photos and content from each episode. 
Also, if you'd like to support our cause in more tangible ways, you can visit our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash the table sessions for exclusive updates and more. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you again next episode.